Hello and welcome back to the Ear Fuel podcast. As always, I'm Joel Freemark, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at @getearfuel and at the Daily Guru. The podcast is always available in the iTunes Store and Google Play stores under Ear Fuel and at SoundCloud.com/getearfuel. I'm back! Woohoo! Yeah! Thanks for all the well wishes, everyone. The wedding was awesome, but it is great to be back in front of the microphone and with all of you now. Today is going to begin a multi-part series on vinyl records that I really think you're going to dig. Before that, though, let's get into a quick album review. The album I want to check out today is the new one from Blood Orange, and it is called Freedom Sound. Now, if you don't know Blood Orange, that is Dev Hines' solo project, and if you don't know Dev Hines... You really need to go get learned on the guy. Honestly, he is one of the most talented writers, producers, and performers around these days, and everything he touches ends up with this brilliant retro future feel to it. But his solo work has been a little bit, you know, you know what? Let me just get into this record because I have a feeling his older albums and my issues there are going to come up naturally. See, there is no question that this record is a highly personal album, as the lyrics speak directly to his life and his struggles, and at every turn, he does his best to engage anyone who's ever dealt with adversity in any way. There are these heavy-handed, very heavy-handed commentaries on racism, sexism, and religion, among other topics, but that's the problem. They are all so on the nose that it actually becomes distracting. It's at its worst on the song But You, which ends up coming off as a cheesy, almost cringeworthy after-school special message, as opposed to any sort of a rallying cry or way to unite people. And that, in many ways, encapsulates the album as a whole. It's overdone. There's no sense of subtlety or, I don't know, there's no sense of diversity to some extent. It's like Dev got into this one musical zone and he decided to stay in it for the entire hour-long runtime of this album. The problem there is that the sound in question isn't all that great. The idea perhaps is, but the execution ends up becoming just laborious. And I mean, you just want it to end, really. Or you zone out, or you might even fall asleep. It just doesn't engage. It's the same sound and song over and over and over. And after the third or fourth song, the record just kind of melts into one really long pile of meh. It becomes background music, but the sort of background music you change as soon as you refocus and realize what you're listening to. Seriously, it got to a point through my handful of listens where I had to take a break from the album because it was so bland and unwavering musically that it was literally hurting my ears to keep listening. And again, that is super disappointing because there's no question Dev Hines is one of the most imaginative and outright talented composers around these days. It just seems that when he's working on his own project, it just gets him in a bit of a rut. And yeah, that's me saying his last record, Cupid Deluxe, which a lot of people loved, it was overhyped for me. It wasn't bad, but it really wasn't as good as what he's shown when he works with other people on their projects. But sticking to this new album, it is super chilled out. And while I love ambient music, and I do, things never really get moving here. And the interludes he drops in from time to time, they make things sound chaotic, if nothing better. It's it's disorganized. I get, though, what he's trying to do here, and I think you need to chalk this up to just how personal a record he made lyrically. I think he held these songs as so precious that he actually forgot to breathe enough life into them to let anyone else really kind of get impact from them or really engage. Instead, you basically have movie closing credits music, an hour of it. It's frustrating because there are some very good musical ideas here, but none of them really ever seem to get fully realized. Also, when you use as much reverb as Dev does across this album, it loses its impact and it ends up making the record very hollow in a lot of ways. 
I don't know. Maybe if you're into throwback sounds of B-grade 80s soul pop, this record might do something for you. But honestly, I expect a lot more out of someone with Dev Hines' level of talent. And this record is just a big, really long miss. Moving on. Vinyl. Vinyl records, to be exact. My favorite way to listen to music, but also one of the most storied and heavily debated things in music. Is it better than digital? Is it worse? Why is it so damn expensive? Why does Neil Young get so weird about it? Why is there an almost cult-like following of vinyl? These are all great questions, and we're going to cover them over the next few episodes individually. But before we dig deep into why people like myself love vinyl and that sort of, you know, cult and culture of vinyl... I think it's important to understand exactly how vinyl came to be. Now, I am going to specifically address that unending conversation of vinyl versus digital in terms of sound in the next podcast, but we can't really get there until, well, well, I mean, we can't really get there until we know how we got there or how we got here. So, uh, yeah, have fun dissecting the tense formations there, fellow grammar nerds. Anyway, let's start off with a bit of a quiz. No cheating even though I have no way of knowing whether or not you'll cheat. Just uh, promise me right now you won't cheat. Okay, good. Now, the question is this, no cheating. In what decade did the first record player come into existence? That is to say, the first stylus-driven audio playback system, a needle, what what most people refer to as a needle, it's technically called a stylus. So uh, just give me the decade of the first record player. So think about it. I will hum the theme to I Dream of Genie while you think. You see, I, I wanted to play it, but I probably would have gotten called out for copyright. Anyway, uh, you got your guess? Good. Now, if you guessed the 50s, you're right. As long as you guessed the 1850s. That's right. In many ways, you can trace the modern record player back to the late 1850s with the phonautograph. It was largely the same concept as a modern-day record player, but it was used almost exclusively for transcribing audio to a visual format for analysis. 1850s, that's right, pre-Civil War in America. You are absolutely welcome for whatever party bets that little nugget of knowledge wins you. Anyway, about 20 years later, so uh, 1877 or so, Thomas Edison invents the first phonograph. That is, that is where the term begins. And while other inventors created similar devices that could record sound, Edison's was significant because it was the first that was able to reproduce that recorded sound elsewhere. The first phonographs actually used tinfoil-wrapped cylinders for playback, with a stylus responding to the ups and downs it pressed down onto the foil. So, I mean, think about it. Tinfoil, or, or aluminum foil as we know it today, it's the same thing. It's not exactly durable in terms of keeping the bumps in the same places. I mean, think, think about when you crumple tinfoil. Tin it's the same idea. So these early cylinders didn't really get many playbacks. Now, thanks to the public domain, I can give you a small sample of what those early Edison recordings sounded like. In fact, this is a filtered and cleaned up version of what most believe to be the oldest recording that he made. This is from 1878. No joke. And the restoration was done by the Library of Congress and I think St. Louis University. So what you're going to hear is Edison playing a cornet and then a little bit of speaking. So 1878, this is a tinfoil cylinder recording from an early phonograph.
So yeah, it doesn't sound great at all. And that, believe me, if you hear the original, the uncleaned and the unfiltered version, it is hilariously bad. But it's still history. And that is where we started. All the way back in 1878, that is kind of the first fidelity. That's a term we're going to use a lot today. Fidelity. And it's basically a nerdy way to say audio quality. So it was the Edison invention that started the use of the term phonograph. And the next few years would show a rapid evolution in the entire system. It's believed that it was the laboratory of Alexander Graham Bell, we know him too, that first began using wax-coated cardboard cylinders for playback. So still using the Edison cylinders, but instead of using tinfoil, he started to use wax for playback. And he also adjusted the cutting stylus, the thing that actually cuts the sound into the cylinder, so it would move from side to side in the record groove instead of up and down. So then around 1889, so we've, we've, we've moved almost 40 years from the beginning here, Emil Berliner brought a radical change. He came up with the idea of lateral cut discs for his new system, and it mostly played 5-inch discs, and they dubbed this new system the gramophone. So phonograph described basically the cylindrical playing systems where gramophones was a 5-inch lateral cut disc. A lateral cut disc is very similar to what we use today. Now, I want to play two more recordings. We're, we're having so much AV time today. Isn't it fun? But no V. You, you could look at your screen and that'll be the V. Anyway, I want to play these two recordings because I want you to understand just how much progress was made right before the turn of the century. So kind of from 1878, from the first recording we had, I want to play these two. The first snippet you're going to hear is from an Edison wax cylinder, so kind of the, the evolved from what we had heard first, and it's called Uncle Harry. And the second one, I'm going to let it speak for itself. Now, when you hear things sort of waver in terms of sound, remember that both the recording equipment and the playback systems were really aggressive in terms of damage. They really weren't meant to last that long, so give a listen. If you couldn't make out the spoken part on the second one there, that was actually Big Ben striking the hour, and it was recorded in July of 1890. But like I said, by this point, Edison's not the only guy around in the game. In fact, by the time 1900 rolls around, you have two very different systems attempting the same outcome. You have the proper phonograph, and you have the proper gramophone. You can kind of see it as similar to the beta VHS battles or those HD DVD versus Blu-ray battles, but... This was going on in 1900. One other key factor in the early days is that vinyl records, they were actually basically a novelty. There really wasn't much of a business behind them, and it would be about another 20 years until people saw the massive profit potential in music. At this point, it's basically scientific imagination and novelty. Nothing more, really. Now, in the first 20 years of the 1900s, you start to see 10 and 12 inch gramophone discs appearing, and slowly, entertainment is being seen as a way to use these discs. People are saying, wow, we can make money out of giving people enjoyment in their house. Weird. Anyway, uh, I, I just want to make a note. I keep saying the word disc, 
because that is what it was. They were being created out of so many different materials, rubber and shellac, eventually modern lacquer vinyl came to be. That wouldn't be for a number of decades. By the way, the reason they stopped using shellac to make these discs it was way too brittle, and the discs would just shatter. And that's why if you find early 78s, we'll get to those in a minute, um, people are very, very careful with them because they can literally shatter. Basically, everyone at the time was trying to figure out the cheapest but most effective way to create these discs, as well as modifying the playout system at the same time for similar reasons. So, it's the 1920s where everything came into focus. Not to just blow by the first 20 years of the 1900s, but, you know, there really wasn't much to look at. Anyway, it was in the early 1920s that the experiments with playing speed came to a close. Edison systems at that time were playing about 80 revolutions per minute, while the gramophone speeds varied by manufacturer, because a couple different people were making them, from about 74 to 82 RPM. In 1925, you get the introduction of the electronically powered turntable motor. This is a huge moment in music history. Huge, 1925. Because since it was electronic, you could finally get a regular speed on it, right? Got it? So it was chosen that 78.26 revolutions per minute would be the standard playback speed. Okay, you know what? Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Let's take a pause here for a moment because I'm throwing out the term RPM and revolution per minute. I'm throwing it out a bunch all of a sudden. And what it means to records is actually really important. So a uh, quick sidebar here. RPM, a briefer brief history. Everybody throws around the term RPM. And as we've already discussed a little bit, it changed a number of times over the decades. But why? I mean, if we still have 12-inch records today, like we did 100 years ago, why did we drop from 78 revolutions per minute all the way down to 33 and a third? It's a good question. Well, the reality is, like so many things in life, it was a bit of a forced compromise between two things, overall playing time and fidelity. You see, the slower a record revolves, it actually starts to lose fidelity the longer it has to play. You might not notice it with a spoken word type thing, which is kind of why it didn't matter in those early Edison machines. But once music gets into the picture, it starts to matter big time. Speaking of those Edison machines, the reason it took almost 70 years to get a standard speed at 78 was because until that first electronic turntable, the one I just mentioned a little bit ago, 1925, everything was hand cranked. So that basically was the speed that you were going to have, and it was way too much of a variable that record labels could count on it. So, you know, you just kind of had to do your best guess. But like I also said, it has something to do with length. In an ideal scenario, early cylinders and discs could get five, maybe seven minutes of audio on them, which is why you see a ton of box sets of those early recordings. There just wasn't enough space per side to do much with it, aside from maybe one song, one and a half songs, something like that. But getting back to RPM, we're working with variable speed and low recording time until 1925 when that electric motor enters the picture. Also in 1925, that's when recording technology starts to change, and it allowed for a far higher level of fidelity at much lower speeds. That is to say, when electronic microphones and other recording pieces entered the process, they were able to surpass the overall sound quality they were getting at 78 RPM all the way down at 33 and a third RPM. So they actually had better sound, and they slowed it down so they could have more space per side. It's a, it's a, it's a complex but kind of easy math equation. But see, this was a very slow change, mostly because it arrives right before the Great Depression in the United States, and companies didn't want to try to get consumers to quickly convert from their 78 players to 33 and a third players. It was way too expensive, and variable motors didn't exist yet. They just weren't making them. 
Now, RCA Victor tried to do that in 1931, but it almost cost them their entire company. So throughout the 1930s, that 33 and a third speed records and players were only used really by radio stations and studios. And it wasn't it wasn't until about 1948 that you see the big move to the style of record and playout systems that we still use to this day. It was actually Columbia Records that led the charge with what they were advertising as micro-groove technology. It was a technology that had been around for a long time. They just figured out a different way to package it. But the first group of music fanatics they focused on with this new technology was, that's right, classical music lovers. Because they were advertising that now they had the ability to listen to an entire movement of music without having to flip the record every five minutes. You understand the frustration that would happen, and suddenly they were saying, hey... You can listen to all of Mahler's Ninth. Actually, Mahler's Ninth would be a little bit way too long. I don't know if that could fit on two sides of a record. I'm a huge music nerd, and that's my favorite piece. Anyway, that was the idea, was if we can get the classical people behind it, because that was still one of the popular sounds at the time, we might be able to do something with this. But RCA Victor were still around, still a little bit bitter, and were not about to be one-upped on the idea they had tried 15 years earlier. So they released an entirely new playout system with its own smaller records. And this new system, it was a bit more familiar to consumers, as it had a similar playtime to the 78s that they'd used for years. And since the discs were smaller, they said it was more convenient. That, that was what they were going for, kind of something that uh, companies would use in the 80s with CDs, saying it's so much more convenient. And this new disc and playout system they created, you guessed it, that was the 45. So... Columbia's out there trying to push the 33 and a third, and RCA Victor is doing their all to get people to buy 45s. And you know that round adapter that you have to put in the record player to play 45s these days? Yeah, you can thank corporate competition for that little annoyance. RCA Victor had their engineers do everything possible to make their records unplayable on the Columbia-style players, and the combination of a completely unique playing speed, 45 RPM, and that big old hole in the middle totally took care of that. This is also why, you know what? Let's get to that in a second. That's a little fun thing, because I know a couple of you are thinking something. We're, we're going to talk about that. So uh, this battle of speeds, let's call it the battle of speeds, lasts until about 1950. And that is actually when the music industry saw one of its biggest drops in sales ever, ever, because consumers sort of sat around and waited to see which format was going to win. Nobody wanted to spend their money on a system that was going to be obsolete. So who won? Well, I know what you're thinking. Obviously, 33 and a third records won because nobody really makes 45s anymore. And while that's largely true, the story is not that simple. In early 1950, RCA dumped something like $5 million. And this is, this is $5 million in 1950. So a boatload of money into a campaign to convince the American public that 45 RPM was the ideal playing speed for music. I'm not kidding you. That was, that was the approach they took, basically saying that 33 and a third was too slow to properly capture music. But as we've already discussed, the playing speed actually doesn't really have much to do with it because... It's about the playout system and, you know, again, that math equation. But anyway, while RCA are doing this big anti-33 and a third campaign, they actually began quietly making 33 and a third records that would play on the Columbia playout system. But their plan actually kind of sort of worked out. The public bought in within a year, and within that year, Columbia started having to make 45 records. So by 1953, dual playout systems finally hit the market. 45s kind of become the single release items, and 33 and a third albums are used for full albums. Uh, that's also why you will see 
45 size records that have just the smaller hole in them. That was when Columbia Records and other record labels pressing for the Columbia Playout system were making 45s. That's why those exist. But wait a second. We were talking about RPM and what it does, right? Sorry, the, the War of Speeds is one of my favorite forgotten oddities of musical history, really. But uh, the question we started with was, why did RPM speed drop? And why does it matter? So, again, it dropped from 78 to 33 and a third, or 45, because we were finally able with technology to fit more music with higher fidelity onto a single record side. That's the why. We, we, we just had the, we had the technology. The other question is, does it matter? Well, no. It really doesn't. Not really. Since the standard of 33 and a third and 45 RPM were set into place almost a century ago, recording processes have been built around them. That is to say, the recording process has gotten better and better and better, and that's why records sound better. It has nothing to do with RPM. In theory, you can fit even more space onto a record if you adjust the turntable speed even more, but you're going to really quickly lose fidelity, so... Nobody really does it, even though you can find some ELP or extra long play albums out there. They exist. And uh, yeah, that's that's kind of what RPM is and how we got there. So uh, let's just jump back into the timeline after that small diversion. We're in 1925, and as the electric turntables come into the market, that's also the year that the Victor Company, they're not RCA Victor yet, that is the year that Victor introduces the Victrola player. And this was able to play those electronically created discs. This was kind of, wow, we can now play at 78. Anyway, they were 12-inch playback discs. And that is when the size starts to become the standard as well. The same 12-inch discs we know today. But for me, the cutting process of early records is one of the coolest things. It's really oh, amazing. See, it was amazingly antiquated, yet an entirely acoustic recording process. Microphones... They just weren't a thing in a large enough way yet, especially within the world of recording. 1925 is when that changes. But basically, the sound, whatever sound it was, someone speaking, an orchestra, doesn't matter, were played into a specially manufactured horn, and it would funnel onto a stylus that would vibrate depending on the sound. This is, this is really, it's the most basic, I mean, it's almost archaic of an example on how a modern microphone works. But the problem was this. The process would lead to massive inconsistencies in sound, there were so many small factors that could lead to poor quality, you know, just, just the ambient sound of the room, placement of people, and it's why you can easily pick out pre-1925 recordings based on their sound alone. So, uh, you know what, let's let the Library of Congress make my words better with a small sample of some recordings that use this technique, and you'll instantly be able to hear what I mean. Sing, sing, without fail, but the Bowie boy is nervous, did not fail, as he went, he whistled like a gale. Again, that wavering sound you hear and the unbalanced level of the instruments, this is because some of them were further away from the recording horn and you can only do so much and you can also have to deal with the, the actual acoustics of the room and the vibration of the floor. You know, like I said, the instant you hear a pre-25 recording, it is glaringly obvious. Now, uh, sticking in 1925 though, which honestly, I will argue is the biggest year in music history. Seriously. That is when a few companies finally developed ways to use early electric microphones for the recording process, and things instantly sounded better. Not crispy and clear like today, but worlds better. So uh, I, I, I want to play another clip for you, a really short clip. It's a snippet from a 1930 recording of Jelly Roll Morton called Crazy Chords, and just listen over those few years just how much cleaner and better balanced recording technology gets.
so yeah, 1925. Microphones, electronic recordings, the Victrola, 12-inch discs playing at 78 RPM across the board. Progress! Now, in 1931, vinyl becomes the standard material for records, but in Europe, they're still making mostly 8-inch discs, which meant there wasn't a ton of recording time on them. Now, we know from the RPM conversation that even on the 12-inch discs, there wasn't a ton of space, and, and due to the playback speed, this is why all of those massive box sets begin to dominate the market and you'll get you know a 20 disc set from someone and uh, they're super collectible these days anyway the 1930s saw very little change in terms of records as this is really the rise of radio and for most people that was more than enough but remember radio stations are already using 33 and a third rpm records because they could afford it and slowly over about 20 years consumers start to be able to get into that thing and that's really what cues the columbia records thing that we discussed earlier now, over the last, you know, let's call it 80 years, the cutting and creation process for vinyl records has stayed very similar, as have the materials used. Really, all, the only large changes that have happened are in the recording process and the playback systems. It's why you can find a record from the 50s and drop it on a turntable that you just bought this year, and you have no problems whatsoever. Sure, there might be, you know, a little bit of pop and crackle on it, maybe some snap, but it's still the exact same thing. There are some amazing videos on YouTube, if you go check them out, that show how a record is actually made, how it's actually pressed, and it's basically the same thing they've been doing all of these decades. So, yeah, that's that's a super condensed history of records, and over the next few weeks, we're going to stay in the world of vinyl. I'm going to discuss the pros and cons of analog versus digital recording and playback. I'm going to talk about how to choose your first or your new record player and stereo system, and chances are we're going to spend some time talking about why people love records and how to, you know, record shop like a pro. But for now, history class is dismissed. Before we wrap the episode, I do, of course, have your weekly Ear Fuel listening assignment. For those of you new to the podcast, each week I assign an album to listen to in full, beginning to end, without any distractions or interruptions. It stems from the fact that these days, music has been largely relegated to a background task. You're at the gym, you're at work, you're driving, whatever. And this assignment is about taking some time each week to consciously listen to music for the sake of music alone. This week, since we spent basically the entire podcast discussing music before 1930, your assignment is to spend 30 minutes with the music of Fats Waller, who is by far my favorite artist from that era. Now, I say spend a half hour with him because there are really only compilations of his music out there, and they're super easy to find all over the internet. He has a copyright as a writer or co-writer on something like 450 or 500 songs, many of which have become standards. Ain't Misbehavin' and Honeysuckle Rose are both in the Grammy Hall of Fame, with the former, I'm almost positive, is in the National Recording Registry. Fats is one of the most important bridges between the vaudeville sound and those sort of novelty-type recordings I mentioned, and jazz. You can trace the very beginnings of jazz music back to Fats Waller, and along with his overwhelming importance to the progression of music, his playing and singing is a true joy to experience. Some of my favorite tunes are This Joint is Jumpin', Everybody Loves My Baby, and When Somebody Thinks You're Wonderful, which was actually one of the final three contenders for our wedding song, but it wasn't. Or just check out the song Your Feet's Too Big. You're welcome for that song. Love that. So, yeah, Fats Waller is beyond innovative and outright essential to the musical timeline. Listen to how he plays, the style, his voice, and, and think about the intent and what he was trying to get people to do. It's just a little bit of sunshine. Anyway... It's a ton of fun to listen to, so go get familiar with Fats Waller right now. Thank me later.
Be sure to tune in next week when I will take on the long-standing question of which, if either, is superior, analog or digital. As always, you can get me on Twitter at at GetEarFuel and at the Daily Guru, and the podcast is in the iTunes and Google Play stores under EarFuel. And hey, if you dig what I do here, go tell a friend or three. That is your weekly EarFuel. Share and enjoy. Enjoy. <laughs>